When one hears the name Amazon, one is probably not immediately going to think of the river or the tropical jungle, but rather uh, one is going to think of the company Amazon. It is everywhere. It is affecting every aspect of our lives, our individual lives, our collective lives as well. And an endlessly fascinating book about Amazon and its founder, uh, Jeff Bezos, has just been written. It's titled Bezonomics, How Amazon is Changing Our Lives and What the World's Best Companies Are Learning From It. Uh, in this book, uh, the author, Brian Dumain, uh gives us a comprehensive look at this enormous company uh, and a discerning look at its history and a very discerning look as well at its founder, Jeff Bezos, although it would be probably incorrect to characterize this as an exhaustive biography. But we are told a great deal about Jeff Bezos, uh, his background, his training, and his array of skills that have allowed him uh, first of all, to create this company and to lead it so fearlessly uh, over the last few years, and of course, leading it to a place of uh, of preeminence uh, in all kinds of different spheres. And Jeff Bezos himself has become the wealthiest man on earth. And uh, we really get a sense of how and why that has occurred. And uh, we learn a great deal about this company that many of us, of course, have some very direct acquaintance with, and yet we might not begin to understand all of the ways in which Amazon is present in all of our lives and a major force uh, in our economy and in other economies around the globe, and really helping to reshape uh, our, our lives as human beings. Um, it's an incredible story, and I am very impressed with uh, Brian Dumain for telling this complicated story as well as he does. Uh, the book, again, is titled Bezonomics, How Amazon is Changing Our Lives and What the World's Best Companies Are Learning From It, published by Scribner. Brian Dumain, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Well, thank you, Greg. It's a pleasure to be here. I am very impressed by what seems to be uh, an, an exceptional amount of access that you have been granted uh, when it comes to the inner workings of Amazon. There are at least some respects in which uh, Amazon has uh, has been a company difficult to penetrate <laughs> when it comes to, for instance, matters of investigation and, and, and careful analysis. And then, there, of course, there are other ways in which Amazon has been been quite open. But can we start there with that matter of access and uh, how you went about securing it, how openly it was granted to you, and what kind of a difference it made in terms of you writing this book? Absolutely, Greg. I, I started researching Bayesonomics about three years ago, and I, I ended up interviewing 150 different people, both employees at Amazon and people outside of Amazon, as well as technology experts and the, and the different fields that Amazon um, plays in. Um, Amazon historically has been a very secretive company. Uh, Jeff Bezos has always believed that if you take care of the customer, you don't have to worry about anything else. You don't have to worry about how the world is perceiving you. You don't have to worry about public relations or governmental relations. You can just take care of the customer and everything will be fine at the corporation. Well, that worked for quite a while. 
But Amazon has gotten so big and so influential in, in many of our lives that uh, Bezos started to have a turn of heart. And he actually started to assemble a PR team. Uh, Amazon barely did any public relations uh, before, let's say, uh, two or three years ago. But uh, with a lot of political pressure coming on Amazon, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders uh, proposed a Stop Bezos Act, which was uh, make, would make Amazon cover the cost of government welfare programs for its workers. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, Senator Elizabeth Warren, uh, suggested that Amazon be broken up. Um, a lot of labor unions were complaining about practices in the Amazon warehouses. So Bezos felt that he had to start addressing these concerns and started building up a PR department. He hired Jay Carney, uh, who was President Obama's White House press secretary, to head up that initiative, and the department has grown. In a sense, I, I was somewhat fortunate when I approached them for my book uh, – I think they were just beginning to think that they had to be more open to the world, and they did allow me in. And I spent uh, time in Seattle uh, interviewing at least a dozen of their top executives, and it, it was incredible access, and it gave me a good feel for what was going on uh, inside of Amazon. Uh, I started out by writing a fortune story. I'm a contributor to Fortune magazine on Alexa and the rise of uh, voice recognition technology, which you know Amazon obviously excels at. And uh, once I was in and reporting that story, I think Amazon got comfortable enough to invite me in for the book and to go deeper. But uh, it was terrific access. Hmm. I can't find it now, but at some point you uh, mentioned somebody asking you, uh, so is this, uh, is this a pro-Amazon book or an anti-Amazon book, or words to that effect? You've, you phrased it more elegantly than that. But, but I mean, I think uh, a lot of people uh, just at a glance would wonder uh, about, your, about your book and if you, in a sense, see Amazon as, uh, as a force for good or a force for uh, evil, or some sort of strange combination of the two, or neither. Um, and uh, as I get done with your book, it, it, it's my sense that none of that really speaks to the purpose of why you wrote this book. Can you uh, talk more about that? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Greg. When I was reporting the book, a lot of very smart people asked me that, that very question, you know, is Amazon good or bad? And, you know, I didn't set out to be a defender of Amazon. I didn't set out to be a critic of Amazon. I wanted to really explore the phenomenon of Amazon. I mean, what is it? Where did it come from? How is it changing our lives? And what we should think about it as we go forward. Um, obviously, you know, if you're an Amazon customer, it's a good thing, right? Uh, Georgetown University did a poll and found that uh, among Republicans, only the Army and the local police were uh, more trusted institutions than Amazon. Amazon came third on the list. Among Democrats, Amazon came number one on the list. So among both Democrats and Republicans in this country, Amazon was believed in as an institution more than uh, the courts, 
uh, the university systems we have here, the uh, and even the church. So they have an um, immense impact on people's lives. People love that box showing up to their door. They love the convenience. They love the, you know, before the pandemic, it was moving towards one-day delivery on many products. Now, on the other hand, you know, if you're a competitor of Amazon, or uh, in some instances, if you work for Amazon in one of its fulfillment centers or you're one of their drivers, it's not all that rosy a picture. And Amazon has had a lot of problems uh, responding quickly enough to the pandemic. They're trying to make up for that now. I mean, in the second quarter, they said they're going to uh, spend $4 billion trying to improve safety practices in their fulfillment centers. But uh, that said, you know, the workers working in those warehouses, even pre-pandemic, had a, a very tough time of it. It's not a great job. Uh, it's it's repetitive. It's very hard on the body. It, they have tough goals. Um, uh, they're long days. It's it's just a, a very tough tough job. But what I point out in the book, and what we should all start thinking about and worrying about, is that Amazon is rapidly automating their fulfillment system. And what that means is that there's only really one aspect of the warehouse uh, job, and I toured an Amazon warehouse for the book, um, that isn't automated yet, and it's called picking and stowing. That's basically where a, a person takes a good and puts it in a bin or takes it out to put it in a box to get shipped. Now, robots do everything in an Amazon warehouse except picking and stowing. Because it's very hard for a robot to distinguish between, by one estimate, the 600 million different products that Amazon sells. They all come in different shapes, sizes, materials, colors. But Amazon and other companies are working on picking robot technology. And if that comes to be a reality, which a lot of people think uh, will happen in the next three to five years, you know, hundreds of thousands of warehouse workers, not just at Amazon, but at Walmart and other uh, retailers around the country, will be out of a job. And at the same time, Amazon's working on self-driving car technology. Uh, they have a big investment in a company called Aurora, which uh, is run by some of the best self-driving car minds coming out of Google and out of Tesla and out of uh, uh, Uber. So you can imagine a day when uh, an Amazon uh, delivery van will just roll up to your door without a driver and deliver the package. And then that would cause another massive wave of unemployment. And as I point out in my book, Basonomics, uh, there was a McKinsey report that said under the worst-case scenario, by 2030, which isn't that far away, obviously, 30% of the global workforce could be displaced by automation. So, yes, you know, in some ways Amazon is good if you're a customer, uh, and, yes, Amazon is bad if uh, you're a victim of automation. By the way, uh, to that last point of the potential for uh, many, many, many thousands of people to lose their jobs at uh, Amazon – uh, in the relatively near future, as you just pointed out, as being a, a real possibility. Uh, what do people at Amazon have to say when that possibility is raised? 
Well, they say a, a couple of things. Um, one, they're really downplaying the uh, time frame for the picking robots. They're saying, oh, we don't have the technology. It's going to be years out. You know, we don't really need to worry about that for a while. But, you know, from my reporting, I discovered that that technology is a lot closer than they like to admit. And the other thing they say is that, and it's what a lot of techno-optimists say, is that, you know, we'll find other jobs for those people. We'll, you know, maybe we'll need people to maintain the robots. Well, yeah, that's that's true, but I came across a, a, a warehouse uh, in Shanghai uh, run by a, uh, an e-commerce company in, in, called JD.com, and they have a warehouse there. Uh, it ships 200,000 packages a day, and it has four employees, and they're there to take care of the robots and to make sure, you know, the doors get locked at night, basically. And you can imagine that in a situation like that, uh, you don't even need lights in a warehouse, right? I mean, the, the robots don't need to see. Uh, so in a sense, you could you could have a warehouse that runs in the dark. So the idea that, you know, there'll be lots of jobs, you know, building or maintaining these robots, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to hard to accept. Um, to, to Amazon's credit, they do have a program that they've been running for a number of years. And if, if you're a warehouse worker who's been there for a year or more and you want to start a new career, Amazon will pay uh, for you to learn that new career, uh, whether it's nursing or whether it's you know, being a truck driver. It doesn't have to have anything to do with Amazon. You don't have to work at Amazon afterwards. But it's sort of an admission that you know, these jobs are going to be disappearing as we move into the future. We're speaking with Ryan Domain about his book, Bazonomics, which uh, examines the uh, the history of, of uh, Amazon, the company, and uh, also the many ways in which uh, it has kind of changed the way in which uh, businesses uh, do what they do. And uh, a little bit later, we're going to get at the heart of what is probably the single key element in Amazon's extraordinary success over the years. Um, I said earlier that your, your book is not uh, an exhaustive biography of Jeff Bezos, but you certainly uh, do a nice job of, of kind of showing us who he is, the kind of person he is, and, and uh, something of his background. I wonder if you could just uh, say a word about uh, his, I believe it's his grandfather. Is that Pop Geezy? Is that how? Yes. That's right. It's Pop Geis. Rhymes Pop Geis. And, and uh, yeah, th- that's a fascinating story, Greg. Um, you know, I, I was trying to figure out, you know, where did Jeff Bezos come from? And his, his mother uh, was a, a teenage mother. She, she got pregnant in high school and then got married. And this was in New Mexico in the, uh, in the mid-'60s. And her husband was a unicyclist named Ted Jorgensen, who uh, basically had a uh, drinking problem. Uh, He wasn't at home much. Uh, He was doing county fairs on his unicycle. Uh, Apparently, he was very good at it. Um, But he left the family when uh, Jeff was uh, a couple years old. Now, his mother, Jacqueline, uh, remarried uh, a man named Mike Bezos, who was a Cuban immigrant. Uh, 
And Mike eventually got a job uh, as a petroleum engineer at Exxon. And Bezos has always considered uh, Mike Bezos to be his real father, although he's not his biological father. And I'm thinking to myself, well, how does a kid, you know, is uh, born of a, a you know a teenage mother, and uh, his father leaves him at a young age? How does he uh, become the richest man in the world, uh, overseeing a, a business that now has 800,000 employees? And that's what led me to his grandfather, uh, Pop Geis. Now, Bezos and his siblings used to spend summers at Pop Geis's Lazy G Ranch in Texas. And it was there that uh, Bezos learned to be resourceful, which is one of the keys to his success. And he and Pop Geis would uh, repair fences, build irrigation systems. They built a prefab house. They even rebuilt an old Caterpillar tractor and made it run. So a lot of the resourcefulness uh, that Bezos gets is from his grandfather, but even that wasn't enough. So I dug a little deeper, uh, and, and I found out that Pop Geis, who just seemed like this you know, good old guy uh, on a ranch, um, before he retired, um, he oversaw the Los Alamos labs, that you know developed the atomic uh, weapon system for the United States, and he was in charge of 26,000 employees, and he had uh, access to some of the nation's most advanced and secretive technology. And you know he would tell Jeff on the summers on the ranch, you know stories about the Cold War and missile defense systems that they'd be designing and building to try to counteract the Russians, and. Suddenly the light bulb went on, and it, it was, yeah, okay, this makes more sense now. Uh, you know, Jeff probably inherited some of that, you know, organizational brilliance uh, and technological know-how from his grandfather. Hmm. You tell us that uh, about him uh, going to uh, Princeton University to study quantum physics, but then shifting over to electrical engineering and computer science, and then taking a job at on Wall Street um, with the hedge fund D.E. Shaw, and it's there that he learns firsthand about the exploding potential of the Internet. And that is where he uh, makes the decision then that he's going to leave this job on Wall Street and start up a company selling books over the Internet. And um, one of my favorite moments as you tell that story about that leap of faith that he takes is, uh, Jeff Bezos saying, our biggest regrets are those of omission. It's the paths not taken that haunt us. And uh, he, that's what he thought about in taking yeah. this big leap in leaving Wall Street and starting up uh, a company to sell books on the Internet out of a garage in Seattle. I mean, uh, it's really interesting to think about uh, not only the modest beginnings of Amazon, but also of the leap of faith required of Jeff Bezos uh, in order to start it in the first place. That, that's right, Greg. I mean, when Bezos w was at uh, D.E. Shaw, which is a uh, New York City hedge fund, his career was skyrocketing. I mean, he was one of the youngest vice presidents in the company. Uh, he was making a lot of money. Uh, his bosses loved him. And when one day he was sitting at his desk, and he saw a report that said the Internet was growing at 2,300% a year. 
And he, he said, I've never seen anything grown that, grow that fast. All I know is that I have to get a piece of this. So he went to his boss and he said, you know, I'm going to leave the eShaw and I'm going to go start an online uh, book selling company. And his boss said, listen, that's a good idea, but probably for someone else to do, not for someone like you who has such a promising career. And it was at that point, as, as you mentioned, that, you know, Bezos – uh, told him about you know missed opportunities are the biggest thing you you want to avoid in life, and one funny twist uh, during that conversation with his boss, Bezos says, "Look, I'm leaving, but if you like, you could invest a million dollars in my company," and the boss said, uh, "No thanks. I mean, I can't even imagine what that original million dollar investment in Amazon would be worth today." <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> he probably regrets that Jeff- deeply. <laughs> I know, I know. It would have been incredible. But um, can't can't feel sorry for New York hedge fund managers, though. Uh, I'm sure this guy ended up doing just fine. Uh, and Bezos drove across country with his young wife, Mackenzie, and they, as he said, they started out of a garage in Seattle. One of the things to realize is that Bezos wasn't really starting a book company. He was starting a, a tech platform, an internet tech platform that just happened to sell books. And the reason he chose books was that, uh, unlike, let's say, groceries, uh, they don't spoil when you're storing them. They're pretty much a uniform size, so they're easy to ship. People pretty much know what's in the books because they can read book reviews. So all he really needed to do was deliver them, which he did. Sometimes he put the books into his trunk himself and drive them to the post office. But it kept growing and growing, and partially because his original website for Amazon had uh, a very elementary version of artificial intelligence on it. Uh, it, it had a, a feature where it could recommend books to uh, Amazon's buyers, books that other people were reading, or if a, a favorite author of someone has a new book coming out, the system would alert that person. And it was a very rudimentary uh, version of what Amazon can do today on its website. But once Bezos got traction on that, he kept uh, growing and growing and eventually adding uh, different products uh, to Amazon.com. And, you know, obviously, you know, he's grown to a company that today is $280 billion in sales, Mm -hmm. second largest company in the United States after Walmart. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed the, 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 the chapters in which you help us understand the way the company functions and kind of the culture of the company. And, um, Although uh, one or two of these uh, I knew at least a little bit about, uh, there were a a number of them that that I really didn't know anything about. But I think you do such a great job of kind of sketching out uh, the way in which this company functions and some of the ways in which it is a a fairly unique company uh, given its size. One of the aspects of, of Amazon is that it is in some respects at least, a very egalitarian atmosphere, a surprisingly flat organization. Uh, tell our listeners about this and about what uh, Je- Jeff Bezos likes to talk about as the facts trumping hierarchy. 
that's right, Greg. I've got a chapter in my book called uh, In God We Trust, All Others Must Bring Data. And that's a saying that a number of Amazon executives actually have on placards on their office walls. And what it means is that Jeff Bezos is obsessed with data. He's obsessed with seeking out the truth. He hates office politics. He hates big meetings. He hates uh, communicating what's going on to everyone. I mean, he had a famous uh, mechanism for managing called two pizza teams. He felt that any project in Amazon should be able to be run by a team um, that was of a size that could be fed by two pizzas. Uh, in other words, he didn't want these big, unwieldy teams to sort of slow down their innovation, slow down their execution of new products and services. Um, and in in God We Trust, All Others Bring Data, another way he he achieved this search for truth. And when I say truth, I don't mean, obviously, philosophical truth. I mean, like, what's the real situation What in the marketplace with your customers, you know, as opposed to, you know, what are people in the organization saying for political reasons, you know, or to cover their backs, or they're just making stuff up. So he had this process called the six-pager, which means it's a six-page memo. So any worker at Amazon who had an idea for a new product or a new service had to compose a six-pager. And the six-pager had to be written like a press release for the product or service as if it already existed. So it would have the features, why customers would want it, uh, what it cost, um, what what the benefits were compared to the competition, et cetera, et cetera. And in each six-pager meeting, Bezos would make everybody sit silently in the room for the first 20 minutes and read the six-pager. He didn't want people coming in who had sort of just glanced it and then they were winging things. He felt the only way you're going to get to the truth is to read these memos, get all the information that you can have, and then after people had read the six-pager, uh, they would vigorously debate the issue. And this is where Bezos' confrontational style came in. He just could not stand people who were unprepared. He could, I mean, he had these famous nutters, you know, where he sort of loses his temper. And, you know, he might shout out something like, you know, what, do you think I took my stupid pill today? Uh, <laughs> and some of the executives I interviewed within Amazon said that when Bezos blew up like that, it wasn't a personal attack. It was more that he was disappointed that either the person wasn't prepared or the person wasn't working up to his or her high standards, and that's when he would vent his frustration. But he never held grudges. Once you know the issue was resolved, they would just move on to the next issue. And the executives who have been with him a long time say it's a very effective way at – getting, you know, at the real story and and being able to innovate very effectively. I mean, Amazon is one of the most innovative 
companies on earth. I mean, if you look at the string of uh, products and innovations they've done, uh, and this has all come out, uh, these have all come out of the six pager and of Bezos's approach uh, where data comes first. And, you know, it's the website itself. I mean, it has incredible algorithms that are able to, you know, allow us to order things in one day and sometimes faster. I have a story in my book where there was a teenager in Seattle who ordered a video game and then arrived at his house uh, eight minutes later from Amazon, <laughs> which is kind of incredible. Uh, but then there's a whole string of other inventions from, you know, Alexa and and the Echo devices that Amazon's building, the Kindle, of course, earlier on, um, cloud computing. Amazon's one of the most uh, innovative companies in cloud computing. They're the largest in the world now with their AWS uh, cloud computing division. Uh, and there are going to be many more innovations to come as, as we look forward. What's interesting, too, is that... Uh in the the fourth chapter in which you talk about uh, Jeff Bezos as the 10,000-year man, the uh, someone who really thinks long-term, uh, that one of, the, one of the things about that is that uh, there is, in a sense, more room for failures uh, because it's not just about the short term. It is about the big picture and the general movement of the company uh, in progressive di- uh, di- di- directions. And uh, at one point you quote Jeff Bezos as saying, Amazon is the best place in the world to fail. And there have been some failures along the way, but those also spring out of this tireless search for innovation. If you're too afraid of failure, you'll be too afraid to innovate. That's right. Bezos has a real penchant for uh, trying things out. I mean, that's part of the resourcefulness he learned on his grandfather's ranch. You know, you just keep trying to figure stuff out on your own and fix it. And what that means is you're going to fail a few times. Um, back in the late 90s, for example, Bezos was trying to expand the sales on Amazon. And he thought, well, you know, I should allow these independent entrepreneurs to sell their stuff on our site. And he, he started out by having an auction system. It was called Amazon Auction. But it ended up like you know, eBay where people would bid on products, but no one came, and it totally flopped. And then he said, okay, I mean, a lot of companies at that point would have just given up. And then he said, okay, let's try something else. So he tried something called Z-Shops, uh, where the sellers had their own site, and they uh, set their own prices, and that flopped, too, completely. And most people at that point would have given up as well. But then he made a third try, and he said, hey, what if we took all these third-party sellers, these independent entrepreneurs, and let them sell their stuff on the same site where Amazon sells its stuff, on Amazon.com? And a lot of the executives in the company pushed back and said, are you crazy? You know, they're going to dilute our brand and we can't control what they're selling and this and that. But Bezos did it anyway. And, uh, you know, today third-party sellers uh, account for 58% of all of Amazon's sales on, uh, it's called Marketplace. And there are more than 2 million entrepreneurs around the world who are selling their wares on Amazon. And, you know, the way 
Bezos looks at it, he says, you know, if you run into failures, you have to go back and do things again and again and again. And he said he's lost billions of dollars on failures inside of Amazon. I mean, the Fire Phone is another great example of a failure, where they tried to come out with a phone to uh, compete with, you know, the iPhone and the Androids, but it just wasn't good enough. And Bezos eventually pulled the plug on that. But he used some of the learning from that to go into Alexa, which, so it wasn't a complete loss to him. What he says is, I'm willing to lose billions and billions of dollars on failed products, but what I'm not willing to do is bet the farm on one big innovation. He says what happens to a lot of companies is that they don't innovate enough, they don't take enough risks, they don't take enough losses, and they wake up one day and they find that oh, my God, we need a home run or else we're going to be in real trouble. And then they make a bet-the-farm innovation, and if it doesn't work out, then that could be the end of the, the ball game. Hmm. So Bezos says if you innovate constantly and take big but not huge bets, uh, you're going to end up in a stronger place. And I think history has really uh, proved that out. I want to also... Uh touch on an observation made in Chapter 5, uh, which, which describes actually kind of the, the central facility for Amazon in, in, uh, in downtown Seattle, and it's kind of this assortment of various skyscrapers that uh, Amazon has, has acquired. Uh, and and it, it, it's, it's actually a, a, a good representation of, of how much of the company's st- structure is, is, is formulated. Uh, you say Amazon really functions like a federation of independent nations, each with its own leader uh, and its own citizens. And that speaks to how much latitude and independence uh, these various lieutenants of these various divisions of the company are, are, are given. And you go on to say in explaining why Jeff Bezos wants Amazon to function like that, you tell us Jeff Bezos believes too much communication and coordination between and within business slows things down. It's just so interesting. And I think as you explain that, you go on to say that, you know, that's not what they teach you at Harvard Business School, (laughs) but that there are ways in which in the real world, and especially in a company as big as Amazon that also wants to be innovative, that something like communication or coordination can actually slow the works down in a way that would really be counterproductive. I think that's a fascinating observation. Well, yes, Greg. I think one of the reasons that Bezos can run Amazon as a collection of federations is it has one of the strongest corporate cultures I've ever come across. And one of the reasons the culture is so strong is that Bezos has these three principles that are drilled into everyone at Amazon, and it's customer obsession, uh, extreme innovation, and long-term thinking. And of those three, customer obsession is particularly deeply ingrained in Amazon executives. In all the interviews I had for my book, Bazonomics, when I was out in Seattle, um, at some point in every interview, these executives would say, well, you know, it all starts with the customer. It's almost as if one of Amazon's data scientists had implanted a chip in their brains that would automatically make them say that in every interview. But uh, they truly believe in customer obsession. Um, And a lot of companies say that they do, but 
Amazon truly does. Everything they do is for the customer. It was a culture where they wouldn't spend much money. They don't have, you know, big fancy cafeterias like you'd find at a Google. Uh, Bezos actually used old doors as desktops to save money because every cent had to go to the customer. And then the second tenant, extreme innovation we talked about earlier, you innovate for the customer. You do things for the customer, things that they would love, things they know, might not know that they want, but uh, Amazon will give it to them. And then long-term, take as long as you need to make it happen. When most companies think in terms of quarters or maybe a year or two, Bezos is thinking at least five to seven years out. Now, in terms of your point about the federations, Bezos has a management technique called the flywheel. It's almost a, a mental framework that allows everybody to be on the same wavelength. And it's one of the reasons people can act independently because they have, a, in a sense, a true north star. They know which direction to move in. And the flywheel, there's an interesting story around the flywheel. I, I need to take you back to uh, 2001, and it was a period somewhat like this. Um, you know, the dot-com stock bubble had burst. The economy was in disarray. 9-11 had hit, uh, and the economy uh, went into even a deeper tailspin. And Bezos and Amazon were on the brink of going out of business. Uh, his stock had gone from 100 and $7 a share to $6 a share. Uh, Barron's had an article whose title was Amazon.bomb. Uh, there's a Wall Street analyst who was predict predicting that Amazon would run out of cash by the end of that year. So in that fall, Bezos invited Jim Collins, who's the author of Good to Great and one of the great management thinkers of all time, to come and visit him and the board up in Seattle. And when Jim addressed them, he said, you know, in perilous times like this, the idea is not to react to bad news, but to focus on building a flywheel. And what he meant by that is a, a flywheel is a mental construct that reflects how your business operates. So after Bezos heard Jim say that, he took out a pencil and he sketched a picture of a flywheel, and it started with the customer. And you do everything for the customer, and if you do that, you start attracting more customers. If you start attracting more customers, then you start attracting more third-party sellers. Uh, and if you have more third-party sellers, because those third-party sellers want to reach this larger customer base, of course, you have th more third-party sellers, you, you get more revenues, which gives you more economies of scale, which gives you more cash to lower prices for your customers or create new products and services. And that, in turn, attracts more customers, which attracts more third-party sellers. And it's a virtual cycle, and it keeps going around and around. And everything you do is focused on making that flywheel move faster and faster. I mean, I came across a, uh, a blog in Amazon from their HR department, which explains – to people wanting to apply for a job at Amazon, that you, you better be familiar with the concept of flywheel before you apply for the job because chances are you're going to be talking about it in your interview. And so that's, 
I found to be the real key to Amazon's success, and more so because they've, in recent years, applied artificial intelligence, machine learning, big data to the flywheel. So it's not just humans pushing the flywheel faster within the organization. It's computers driving the flywheel faster and faster. It's getting smarter on its own, and it's allowed for the kind of incredible growth we've seen in Amazon. I wonder if, I'm not sure if you can describe this in just a couple of minutes, but one of my favorite moments uh, in the chapter where you really explore how this flywheel functions, especially when you it is powered by uh, AI, by artificial intelligence, is when you talk with uh, Jeff Wilkie, Amazon CEO of, of Worldwide Consumers or something like that. Uh, yep, yep. He was charged with re-engineering uh, Amazon's warehouse system. And it's just fascinating the changes that he made and the way in which he was managed to kind of rethink the whole function of these warehouses. Can you just sketch uh, the, the, the kind of change he made that made a huge difference? Absolutely. Um, a lot of people say that if Jeff Bezos, God forbid, got you know, run over by a bus or more likely um, you know, explodes in a rocket ship, um, that it would be Wilkie who would take over Amazon. And Wilkie is a has a brilliant logistical mind. I mean, he, he graduated summa cum laude from Princeton, earned an MBA and an MS in chemical engineering from MIT, worked at Allied Signal uh, before uh, coming to Amazon. And what he did is redesigned the notion of a warehouse. Um, before Amazon, most retail warehouses stocked items and huge quantities you know it's like uh, if you're at walmart you say you know ship me um you know 500 rolls of toilet paper from the warehouse right and what wilkie did is he figured out by using algorithms uh and, and big data how to ship small amounts of uh, of, of products, so you know whether it's you know one toothbrush, one uh, sne- pair of sneakers, whatever, and that that was not the way warehouses ran. Now his second big innovation was to allow uh, these algorithms and artificial intelligence to start making the retail decisions that humans used to make. Amazon used to have a, a big meeting every week where their 60 top retail executives would get together and they decide what are our best-selling products, how many do we need to order, what color, what size, where in the world should we ship these, where is the demand. And a lot of that has now been totally taken over by artificial intelligence. So the decisions that used to be made by that meeting of 60 executives is now being made by algorithms. So these machines can decide where demand is going to be. Uh, they can uh, say, you know, oh, we're going to have the Rose Bowl, so we know Pasadena is going to need more sunshade and or more uh, football jerseys of you know the teams that are playing or whatever. And that is really 
sped up uh, the whole warehouse process for Amazon and, and has allowed it to you know, handle the vast number of products it, it sells today and to continuously speed up delivery. I mean, before the pandemic, as I mentioned earlier, Amazon was headed for a standard one-day prime delivery, which is pretty incredible if you think about it, given that they have 150 million prime customers uh, around the world. Uh, That's a logistical – I mean, if you're trying to do that the old-fashioned way, uh, forget about it. But Wilkie has imposed this type of – algorithmic genius on this system that allows Amazon to respond quickly. Hmm. And I should mention uh, in something that kind of made my eyes light up a little in in this chapter again where you explore this notion of the flywheel, this underlying architecture of momentum as it is uh, described at one point. The Jeff Bezos also has in a sense uh, implemented this in his own personal life that he does not look at questions of, you know, you have your work and then you have your personal life and you have to somehow balance the two. He doesn't believe in that. He believes that our personal lives as well should be, in a sense, built in this sense of perpetual momentum and that whatever it is that gives us energy and gives us joy, whether it's our personal life or our work or both, but but that they work in concert with each other in a way that creates this cycle that, uh, that, at least for Jeff Bezos, makes life worth living. Yeah, that's right. I mean, he doesn't believe in the work-life balance idea. He, he says that it, that's not the way to think of it. He thinks it's a flywheel, it's a circle, it's not a balance. Uh, you know, a, a balance applies that there's a strict trade-off, you know, but he says, you know, you can be out of work and have all the time for your family in the world, but you know, if if you're really depressed about your work situation, uh, you know, your family won't want to be anywhere near you. So the idea is to, you know, find a way to be fulfilled at work and fulfilled with your family, and the the time will take care of itself. So you know, you know, if you're if if you're working long hours but you're happy at work, his philosophy is. It's, you're not spending maybe as much time with your family as you'd like, but those hours are going to be good hours because you're fulfilled, you're happy, you're going to be giving to your family. Um, you know, he uh, li- lived by this for quite a while, but I, I really wonder, you know, more recently with his divorce, um, whether he still deeply believes in this as much as he did earlier. Maybe the flywheel got off kilter a bit. Um, uh, it, something obviously uh, was making him not happy, uh, and he, he wouldn't have made this change uh, to uh, you know, leave his wife, Mackenzie, and now he's engaged to Lauren Sanchez. He used to be a, a Fox uh, newscaster. Uh, and, you know, it's almost you know, I wouldn't say this, but others have. From the outside, it, it looks like a midlife crisis. I, mean, I I don't know what's going on in Jeff Bezos's brains about his personal life, but uh, you know, he used to look like you know the 18-pound weakling geek, and now he 
looks like the rock. He's buffed up. He wears vests and aviator shades, and uh, he's hanging out at Hollywood parties. I mean, as you know, Amazon is now huge in Hollywood. They invest billions of dollars every year in producing new movies and new television series. So he's got a little bit of glitter or a little bit more glitter in his personality than he had before. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I'm really wondering, you know, how how uh, how that personal flywheel is working for him right now. Right. Well, your book is uh, a fascinating examination of Jeff Bezos and of the extraordinary company he has created. Again, the book is titled Bezonomics, How Amazon is Changing Our Lives and What the World's Best Companies Are Learning from it, published by Scribner. Uh, Brian Dumain, thank you so much for giving the world this fascinating book, and thank you for joining me today on The Morning Show to talk about it. Greg, it's been a pleasure.